Great. My name is Kodo. Wow. Wow. Thank you for being here. This is um, Yangerman Zen. It's Tuesday. This is San Francisco Zen Center. Since we have some new folks here, I'll just introduce myself briefly. Um, Kodo Conlan, I'm a practice leader here at City Center. I lived in these um, San Francisco Zen Center temples uh, here at Tassajara Green Gulch for um, eight, eight years, I think, eight, nine years, something like that. Um, anyway, quite a, quite a fortunate situation to, uh, to practice in community like this. In, uh, in all my time, uh, different places I've practiced, I've never seen a community like Young Urban Zen. Um, so I, I'm inspired every time I come to see you. <laughs> so thanks for being here. The topic, topic for tonight is uh, sustainable compassion. Sustainable compassion. And when I was, um, when I was reflecting, on, reflecting on what I'd like to, to share with you tonight, I remembered my, my Zen teacher saying to me, give the talk you need to hear. It apparently was an instruction her own teacher gave to her. Give the talk you need to hear. That's, um, that compassion is at the, the forefront of practice right now. And there's so much, so much ailing us, I think. So there's this story in the, the Buddha's teaching where, where someone goes to the Buddha and says, uh, how do you cross the flood? Has anyone heard this story before? How do you cross the flood? Obviously there's some metaphorical content there. But the Buddha's response was, it's by not halting and not struggling that I crossed the flood. And the, the, the being says, uh, okay, so how did you do that? How did you not halt and not struggle? And the Buddha's response is, when I halted, I sank. And when I struggled, I got swept away. That's, that's how I didn't halt and didn't struggle and cross the flood. So in a, another, another way of saying unsustainable compassion is compassion and sinking. And that's the basic question I want to talk about is how do we, how do we practice compassion in a way that doesn't sink us, in a, in a way that we can continue, in a way that's sustainable. There are th sort of three, three aspects to this. We'll see how much of it we get to. There's, each of them is so rich. But I'm, um, so I've been, I've been studying this set of teachings by Bhikkhu Inalio. It comes out of the early Buddhist tradition. And uh, I consider that sort of our common heritage of all of the Buddha, the Buddhist traditions. Um, some interesting things to say about compassion. So the, the first thing deals directly with this question of how do we not sink? Um, so I was on I was on a retreat with Bhikkhu Analio recently, and I I, pretty, I asked him this question. 
This is a practitioner with a lot of, a lot of experience and a lot of study. And more or less, I asked him, how do, I, how do I take in everything that we're being asked to take in, and how do, I, how do I stand it? Like, how do I live with it? How do I carry on? He was so sweet. He had this big smile on his face. He's such a joyful guy. And he pointed me in the direction of making a really important distinction. And that is, there's a difference between um, noticing, knowing, being with suffering, on the one hand, and compassion. That these things are they're not exactly the same. Compassion includes the first, but it's not the whole picture. If what we do, if, our, if, it, if it's our practice to, to know and be with and keep our hearts open to a world that's in pain, to beings that are in pain, and we don't have the rest, well, what we find in the, actually when this is studied, that leads to the things we know. That's compassion fatigue. That's like burnout. There ha there's this extra element. There's something else that, that's included in addition to knowing that there's suffering here. And that extra element can be expressed in a couple of different ways. In some of the, some of the neuroscience literature, the key, the key difference is just wishing that someone be better, be okay. Can you imagine? Like, not to say that this changes someone's material circumstances, and there's, there's work to be done, there's work to be done there. But in this, in this study, in this literature, the thing that led to not burning out, the one ingredient they add, is just your heart saying, oh, I wish for this person to not suffer. I wish for this being to not suffer. And bringing those two together is the beginning of the practice of compassion. So this distinction between like, being sensitive to suffering and compassion, I think, is a really important one. Um, the the uh, example the example that I was given was, um, imagine, imagine you're a physician, right? And you see, you see a patient, and you're sort of holding the difficulty with the, the person who comes to see you, right? Um, if all the doctor did was know that that other person is suffering, but like didn't assess the causes, and didn't offer a prognosis, and didn't give a treatment, how effective would that be? Maybe not, maybe not so much. So the... The, um, the Buddha was known as a great, great physician, yeah, one, of, uh, one of the metaphors that describes him. And uh, it's important to note that the, the path that he taught doesn't end with just contemplating difficulty. I know this first section is sort of challenging, difficult, like bringing, bringing suffering into the room, so I just want to pause and like register that. And... Um, Having a, having, a moment to, having a moment simply to recognize that, that uh, <laughs> in a very simplistic way, to live right now is not easy. And more difficult for some than others. Um, 
I think, I think all of us have the, have the task, the very real task of discerning when has our heart had enough for now? Like when, how much is enough? And I think this, this distinction of contemplating suffering and practice of compassion, that's a beginning of sorting, sussing this out. Second, this is where we start to get to a little bit of good news. This is where we start talking about rest, rest, the necessity of rest. Um, in, in kind of dramatic, maybe a little humorous form, the, the question at the center of this, of this aspect of compassion practice is, uh, how dare we? <laughs> like, how dare we rest? How dare we uh, take time to meditate, to even go on retreat, to care for ourselves in, in such difficult times. I say this with a little bit of humor because it's so clear that we can't just go on incessantly. Like, we have to have time. Even the Buddha slept, you know. A story I told this morning, I, um, there, was a, there was a teacher who was also a physician at working with Doctors Without Borders. Does anyone know this organization? I just read the stats. Doctors Without Borders is unbelievable. They have something like 6,300 people, or 63,000 people working in 70 plus countries as of 2021. And um, they, I don't know, specialize or intend to support those locations and medical systems that, that need the help. So they go into some really challenging territory, right? And this person that I knew is both a, both a physician and a practitioner, a teacher for a, a long time. She's going in just like day in, day out, right? Like um, going in to serve people, to care for people's bodies. And she got to this point where she would, she would finish with a patient, she would go back to her, her dwelling, and she would just like break down. She would just lose it. And the phrase I remember her saying when she told me this story, she said, then I knew this isn't working anymore. This isn't working anymore. I have to go on retreat now. And it was time. It was time. It was something I, something I love about this, this discernment for her is that she gave she gave everything she could give. And then when her, when her body, her heart, her mind said, you've got to do, you've got to make a change, then she did. And she did. Mm. One of the things that we see, one of the things that we see when, um, when, our, when our hearts and our minds are sort of over overtaken or over, uh, what is it? I heard it this way this week. Classical definition of stress is when uh, outside demands overpower internal resources. And when this, ha when this goes on for too long and the stress becomes too much, one of the consequences of this uh, is that we can't quite see what we need anymore. 
it's harder to see what we need. And it's harder to see how to help others, how to engage with others in a way that's skillful. So um, I'm going to st stretch the example a little bit, but I found when I was... Um, when I was practicing with really challenging emotions, I have a policy. When my, when my mind is under the influence of a really strong emotion, I don't make any decisions. I just stop. I just stop. And I pause. And I wait. If I have the time. Sometimes I don't have that luxury. And it's like, you know, I'm in a... I'm going to muster my energy and I'm going to make a clear decision, the best one I can make, and then handle the consequences. But this thing, how do we, how do we know when we need rest? And then when we know, how do we, how do, we do it? We, get, we have a lot of tools in the Buddhist tradition for, for deep rest, sort of make it a practice of sitting meditation. But I, I, I talk to I talk to people who have this like broad array. It's not not limited to the not limited to sitting in meditation halls. It's like going for a walk in Golden Gate Park, having a good meal, having a conversation. Um, when I was talking to people who were doing uh, training as um, trauma therapists, uh, one of the things that they really emphasize is social connection. It's like, even when your body and your mind say, oh, the last thing I want is a phone call, just like picking it up, picking it up and connecting with somebody to get that, get that system back online. Anyway, all these are just examples of different resources we have. But in the spirit of, in the spirit of sustainable compassion, uh, I, I really want to underline rest is it's essential. It's essential. So please, please take it. Um, The third aspect of this sustainable compassion is um, a, little, a little brighter good news. I was a little surprised by this, but I, uh, in the, um, I couldn't find exactly where, but somewhere in the later tradition, maybe it's like Yogacara, the images of compassion is like a tree. I like this. And uh, the tree is nourished by a root. And the root, this is what surprised me. What's the root that nourishes and protects the tree? It's loving kindness. I would not have guessed. But the um, loving kindness is an English word. It doesn't quite hit the mark for me to, to, to say what this is. But metta, my tree, this this attitude and action of like basic friendliness, like basic goodness toward other people, um, is the thing that nourishes, nourishes compassion. So say, say it's just been too much, and I notice that the branches on my compassion tree are starting to get a little saggy, um, then the thing to feed, the thing to feed the compassion is to come back to metta, to come back to loving kindness. What's remarkable about this is that compassion, compassion sort of, it demands something of us in terms of the heart. Metta is something you can practice with your words, with your actions, and with your thoughts. Like, you don't have to be in a certain mood to do something nice for someone. 
you know? What, um, the good news is that you can, you, can nourish, you can nourish compassion by engaging in something as simple as gift giving or a smile or just basic kindness. It sounds so simple, and I, I give really simple examples on purpose so that we don't have to think that it, it takes some, some really big change to be nourishing the ecosystem of compassion. Just simple goodness to each other, you know. So, uh, when my Zen teacher was at, at Tassajara, uh, if anyone's been to Tassajara in the summer, it is hot. It is hot and it is long and it is so tiring. If you're working there, if you're working there. Oh, <laughs> that's funny. I sent out a plug on e email today and like... <laughs> uh, Still great training. Still great training. I sent out a plug on the email list today for anyone who didn't get it. And it was like, oh, this is a great opportunity. Go to Tassajara for the summer. Because it just came to me. And I thought, of course, please. No, sincerely, being at Tassajara was formative. It's a very powerful thing. <laughs> I'm building it up for the story. How hot it, no, it really is hot. Okay, so... I don't know, maybe her first summer, first few summers, whatever. And she, uh, she was having one of these days. It's just like another 100-degree day. And she, she's like in her head, sort of closed off, just like, uh. You know when, the, when someone gets really hot and tired, how their stance gets wide when they walk? You know, she was doing, I'm imagining she was doing this. And then she had this moment on the path on the path, it's very narrow, right? She's walking this way, someone else comes walking the other way, another student, and the student must have been just having the best day of their life. Because the way she tells the story, they had this big smile on their face. She just looks my teacher in the eye and just like, ah, I'm so happy right now. There, there wasn't any conversation apparently, but just smile, registered the smile, and Linda said, it's just like, oh, it just like lit me up. Just lit me up. I was, all of a sudden, I didn't care that it was hot again. And she noticed, oh, I'm smiling. And then as she, she tested this out over the years, she, she realized how powerful just a, just a smile. So simple. And then she would start to do this. You know, if morale at Tassajara was starting to dip, and she would, she would like go around smiling at people in a way that worked. <laughs> you know? But this basic kindness, you know, it, um, it connects us to others, it rejuvenates others, it rejuvenates us. It feeds, it feeds our, our compassion and gives it practical expression. I think by way of sort of wrapping up, Dogen Zenji, the founder in Japan, what a writer, what a practitioner, what a teacher. He has this fascicle he calls the circle of the way. We make circles mean a lot. 
a lot of different things. But I was, uh, as I was doing some reading and study about compassion, I found a, a scholar who talks about a circle of compassion where the, our effort at our own cultivation, cultivating, cultivating the qualities of heart, the beautiful qualities of heart and the mind, it nourishes our ability to offer compassion. It's like our, our personal practice nourishes our practice that can care for others. And then the opposite is also true, or the, the inverse is also true. Caring for others also supports self-cultivation, was his contention. And I see this. I see this. Uh, in, the, in the early teachings, they have something, um, something about the definition of a wise person is someone who knows uh, how, to, how to act for their own benefit, for the benefit of others, and the benefit of both. And we can start with basic friendliness. So this is what I have to offer in the service of sustainable compassion, I think. This distinction between contemplating suffering, opening to dukkha and compassion, I think that's really important. Recognizing when it's time to rest and really, really resting as much as you can. And then that loving kindness, this basic friendliness can be like the fuel or the, the nourishment for our compassion. Dharma sounds so simple, you know? I hope we can, hope we can give, uh, give our efforts to it. <laughs>